an even more tragic case, there's Rosenda Strong from the Yakima Reservation. Um, Rosenda Strong went missing and was found in a freezer uh, that was thrown off of the highway. Um, and unfortunately, she was dismembered into trash bags. And again, it was years until finally her sister showed up at every single possible meeting. Uh, Rosenda's sister was at like legislation hearings and family testimonies for missing and murdered indigenous people. And her sister was um, was missing in 2019. And it was only in 2023 that they started the, they named the suspects. And these, the, for the whole four years, her sister was doing it all on her own. How can I help? How can I be useful in ending needless suffering? Do not be afraid of work that has no end. We have to organize a social movement. We have an opportunity to lead by example versus just talking hot air. I think the more people in this fight, the more we grow. Eventually you could change. You know, the people are the ones that can make the change. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back and thank you for tuning in to Change Agents, an ironclad original presented by Montana Knife Company. Today's episode is going to focus on missing and murdered Indigenous women, and I'm going to be talking with activist and athlete Rosalie Fish. Rosalie is a women's track and field athlete at the University of Washington, where she was recently selected for a prestigious Truman Scholarship from the Harry S. Truman Scholarship Foundation. She often runs and trains with red painted handprint on her face, dedicated to Indigenous women and girls who have been killed or disappeared. Rosalie and her advocacy work have been featured in outlets including Runner's World, The Ringer, Yahoo Sports, Shape, and even on the TEDx stage. Rosalie also frequently paints the letters MMIW, Mike Mike India Whiskey, on her leg during races to raise awareness about missing and murdered Indigenous women. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Let's dive right in. Tell me about where you grew up and the environment that you uh, grew up in. I'd be, uh, I think, a fascinating or an interesting start for the conversation. Okay, sure. Um, so I'm enrolled in the Cowlitz tribe, but I am also a Yakima and Muckleshoot descendant. So the Muckleshoot Reservation is in Auburn, Washington, um, about an hour south of Seattle. Okay. So it's a very rural area. Um, and on the Muckleshoot Reservation, there's... Um, our own organizations and businesses. So I actually went to the Muckleshoot Tribal School, um, which is basically like a private school that focuses on Native American students. And the curriculum is designed and taught by uh, Muckleshoot tribal members and employees. What would you say, and I mean, I don't know if you uh, did any schooling in a traditional like public schooling system off the reservation. What would you say the main differences in the curriculum were? I would definitely say accessibility. Hmm. So I did go to a public school for a while. Um, and my culture, my history, and people like me were wildly inaccessible in public schools. And it wasn't until I moved to a tribal school where suddenly I was introduced to classes for my traditional language called Hoshutsi, or to indigenous histories, or even to native advisors. Um, and just kind of like that community or even um, indigenous culture classes or art projects like all of these things that are considered to be essential to native cultural and political identity were just not accessible to me at a public school yeah yeah i actually would have been surprised if you said that they were accessible or readily available what was your experience like growing up uh in that environment on a reservation I grew up in a predominantly white border town, mm -hmm. and so sometimes there was a lot of um, conflict between um, the tribe and the border town. Um, one of the examples being like the policing. Unfortunately, a lot of people in my community faced a lot of racial discrimination from the border town police uh, to the point where 
women and girls were going missing and being accused of just going on a bender or running with the wrong crowd. And there was a lot of victim blaming. And so growing up in that tension leads a lot of young native youth, especially on my reservation, to have a distrust in the public systems that are meant to serve us. Um, but that being said, I am really grateful for my community. We're very tight knit. It's one of the few places, um, my reservation that I can go on a run at night and know that I'll have people like watching me, looking over me. I'm definitely known as like the runner for my community because no one else really sees um, the benefit in running. It's exhausting. I it's not. I have a car. I get there so much faster. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, more comfortably. Too. Oh, for sure. Air conditioned, climate controlled, maybe some change in the radio stations. Not that I listen to the radio anymore, but. <laughs> for sure. So, well, physical activity and walking and basketball and football and all of the other sports are pretty popular. Running hasn't always taken off. So when people do see me running, they normally know who I am. Um, and there's something very comforting in that because it makes me feel a lot less alone. And knowing that I'll have people driving by on the main road and like waving at me and honking at me or calling my mom and letting them know that they saw me. Uh, so it's a very comforting and safe community that can be really hard to find um, anywhere outside of the reservation. Yeah, I, I can't argue with that. It almost seems like uh, there's a lack of community in a lot of the areas where people are densely populated. They might see each other, but there's no sense of connection. I actually think if somebody saw me running, they would call my wife to make sure that I was okay because they would know it would be so abnormal and out of character. So I guess there's that, but that's totally different than somebody like watching out for me and reporting back where I was. When I, I know you are uh, an advocate for indigenous women when did you when did it first when did you first realize um that the issue was the size scope and scale that it is when it comes to missing indigenous women it really hit me that it was national level rather than a local level because while i did have distrust in the systems that were supposed to keep us safe on my reservation um, one of the first stories that comes to mind is renee davis who was about 23 years old and she was about six months pregnant with, um, had he been born, it would have been my cousin. Um, and unfortunately she was shot and killed during a welfare check uh, while laying in her bed by King County sheriffs um, because her partner at the time had called a welfare check because she'd been depressed. Mm -hmm. And the, the police or the King County Sheriff was never held accountable and there was never any justice for her family. Similar with Misty Upham, uh, who was reported missing and then was accused of simply being on a bender and was found 11 days later at the bottom of a ravine. And Auburn police labeled it as a suicide. Uh, but her family knew that like, something had happened to her. So there are very many instances or even I'm a really powerful role model in our community. Her name was Rachel Gibbons. And she was actually around my age at the time of her murder. And she was killed in a hit and run. And there was very little to almost no urgency trying to find justice in her case from Auburn Place as well. So while I knew this was an issue of neglect as well as prejudice, I didn't take into scope that it was a national thing until the Urban Indian Health Institute came out with a report called Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls that did a countrywide study and ranked the number of missing and murdered Indigenous women's cases by state. Um, and in that case, it was New Mexico that was in first. I was going to ask, yeah. And Washington was in second. However, Seattle actually leads the nation of the, the most city uh, with the, or sorry, the city with the most missing indigenous persons. Is there, for those two uh, cities specifically, or those two areas, are they able to draw any, I mean, a, an assumption or a conclusion as to why it's those two areas that are so, it's so prevalent? 
while there is a bigger presence in the native community, I think it also has a lot to do with the border towns and lock, lack of jurisdiction. So unfortunately, there's a really big loophole in which state officers and tribal officers have a hard time working together. And there's really no legislation that holds state officers accountable to working with tribal officers. So this loophole makes it so that the only person who is required to intervene or to follow up on these missing cases are federal officers. And this is because the tribe is a sovereign nation. Mm -hmm. So the relationship is nation to nation, and that's where the federal government comes in. However, unfortunately, they very rarely send an agent. And so these cases are just being neglected and overlooked and turned cold. And not only it's not only the high presence of of indigenous people in that area, but also the the border towns and the lack of jurisdiction. So and I, I just want to make sure that I understand the mm -hmm. jurisdictional Venn diagram, if you will, that you're laying out. So on tribal land, um, like a state law enforcement officer has no authority, correct? Yes. Or, or unless perhaps they are invited on or they are asked to work with the uh, tribal police. But it is if, if, if something were to happen on tribal land, I'm assuming most tribes have a police force that would be responsible for investigation and handling everything uh, beyond that. Absolutely. And unfortunately, the part that gets messy is that only if a tribal member commits a crime against another tribal member. Okay. But what we're noticing with the majority of these cases is a non-Native person committing a crime against a tribal member. And that's where the federal government is supposed to intervene because it's a member of their nation committing a crime against a member of a tribal nation. So when the offender is a non-Native person, the tribal courts are basically deemed powerless. When you say a federal agent, we're talking about the FBI, I'm assuming at this point. Yes. Okay. And then, so let's say it's a tribal member that is involved uh, in an incident in outside of the tribal land, then it would fall to the state police. I'm, I'm just trying to paint this picture in my head so I can understand where the loophole exists. I can see how that, yeah, I can see how there's, uh, there's plenty of room for that to get dropped. Yeah, and when it is off tribal land, it is normally by state police. However, unfortunately, we'll see that once the person is identified as native, that sometimes uh, state police will kind of back off and be like, well, it's, I don't know if it's our jurisdiction. Um, you know, we should just have a federal agent involved, and then the federal agent never comes. And we're left with, in the state of Washington, hundreds of cold cases. I'm I'm glad that you brought that up. My next question was going to be, in your estimation, in 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 living in this world and being an advocate for this world, how large of a scope would you estimate the issue of missing or murdered indigenous indigenous women is? I can at least say that four out of five indigenous women will experience some form of violence within our lifetimes. In the state of Washington alone, there is 111 cold cases. Um, unfortunately, there is a lot of data that's kind of misconstrued or simply not there. Mm -hmm. In other states, here in Washington, there's a missing and murdered Indigenous Women and People's Task Force. And there are in other states like Colorado and Alaska. Uh, however, a lot of Indigenous women are misidentified during crimes and then the neutral or the um, the assumed identity is normally white. And so there's a lot of these cases that are being, um, being misidentified and it's really hard to track. And it was only through studies like the Urban Indian Health Institute, which were doing qualitative data. They were going in and interviewing and talking to the tribes and trying to find these loopholes. Um, but what I can say is that every single Native person that I know and that I have met has some relationship to the missing and murdered Indigenous peoples crisis. Um, and there are hundreds of cold cases, at least within the nation, because um, there's 111 in Washington alone. 
Yeah, you know, I have some t- uh, statistics in front of me, and one of them says, in the U.S., murder is the third leading cause of death for indigenous women, which is pretty shocking. And, and from your perspective, I mean, this is a very broad question, but what do you, why do you think that they are so often the target of violence? So indigenous women are targeted specifically as victims of human trafficking. A lot of reservations, we are in rural, remote areas. And unfortunately, due to generational trauma and um, historical discrimination, a lot of Native peoples are living in poverty. We are one of the most impoverished demographics in the nation. And that stems from being removed from our traditional lands to being forcibly sterilized, um, to being discriminated in the workplace environment. And so communities that are struggling to connect with their culture or communities that are struggling to provide and put food on the table or get access to education, they are targeted as victims of human trafficking. And unfortunately, perpetrators begin to notice these loopholes between the federal, state, and tribal jurisdiction. And it adds to a community that is rich in targets for human trafficking. There's also high rates of domestic violence in um, in relationships with Native communities, especially um, for non-Native people who are in the relationships who are aware of the loophole. Would you uh, would you say that the rates of domestic violence are higher than um, a non-tribal environment, like statistically higher than, unfortunately, to say average rates of domestic violence? Yes. Interesting. And that actually applies to both um, Indigenous women and Indigenous men. Uh, both experience high rates of domestic violence. Hmm. Okay. That's a statistic I was not aware of. What have... What have you seen in your own experience to be, I mean, there's, there's always going to be predators in the world. I think we can agree upon that. And there's, there's things that we can do to try to prevent predatory acts. You know, you can, you know, the legal system hopefully does its job. There's investigations, you know, catching these people, hopefully before they commit their crime. But if they do doing something about that, that's one aspect. Mm -hmm. What have you seen to be the most effective from the tribe or tribes inside of themselves, because you can't control, I mean, to a degree, obviously you can, you know, try to prevent the predator from getting access, but there's an aspect of it. You can focus on the things that you can control yourself. What have you seen to be the most effective tools at combating these statistics, whether it's domestic violence, human trafficking, assault against women, physical or sexual, have you, have you seen things internally that have made a difference? Yeah, absolutely. I think prevention is the biggest thing that tribes are focusing on now, and that's empowering people through education. Unfortunately, a lot of our youth who are targeted as victims of human trafficking have never been introduced to what does grooming look like, Mm. right? Like what are the warning signs of human trafficking and um, what makes them vulnerable to human trafficking? So things like this, unfortunately, a lot of Native youth just haven't been exposed to. And it's like this lack of awareness that makes indigenous people a target. And so education and um, community building within the tribes has been especially powerful. Even where I'm going to work, Mother Nation uh, runs a missing and murdered indigenous girls prevention group. So every Sunday, the girls all get together and they talk over like, what does consent mean? What is grooming? How do we have healthy relationships with ourselves and others? And also creating that healthy connection to culture because there are certain cultural values and traditional values um, for each tribe that encourage some form of like physical, emotional, spiritual, and social health. And so when these needs are not being met, because unfortunately they're just not emphasized in Western medicine, like this holistic care. What are you talking about? We got a pill for everything. Yeah. yeah. It's just $1,000. You got it. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, an insurance might cover it. And if that pill doesn't work, we got three other ones that can deal with the side effects. It's totally fine. Yeah. (laughs) For sure. 
And so a big part of it is I even go into schools and I teach, I teach some of the students about like the holistic care and like, how do you care for yourself physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually? And it's this like strengthened connection to culture, to values, to knowledge uh, that can be very, um, very protective factors. However, there's only so much we can be done with the inside. Um, I do think of a woman from the Yakima Nation, which is one of my tribes, who was um, murdered here in Seattle, and her body was found less than a mile away from my house. And she was a social worker, and she was doing um, a wellness check. She was specifically a, a housing crisis social worker, mm-hmm. and she was murdered while doing her job. And she... Right. She was connected to her culture and community. She was serving the public. And there are just some things that like we fully cannot control. And that could easily be be me. I am a social worker and I'm connected to my community and I'm connected to my culture. But there's only so much my tribe can do to protect me. You know, we're only half half of the equation. Ladies and gentlemen, I could not be more fired up to introduce the presenting sponsor, for season two of Change Agents, Montana Knife Company, founded by somebody that I feel very fortunate to call a personal friend, Master Bladesmith, Josh Smith. Not only a Master Bladesmith, but the youngest Master Bladesmith and one of the most experienced in the world. Montana Knife Company blades are some of the finest that I've ever been able to get my hands on. They are the sharpest knife out of the box and they're some of the easiest to resharpen when you dull the blade. I take them everywhere that I go. I have them in every vehicle that I own and every backpack that I ever take into the backcountry. Specifically, my favorite blade of theirs is the Speedgoat. It's lightweight, but so incredibly capable. I never leave home without it. If you're familiar with Montana Knife Company, you know it is often very difficult to get one of their blades because they sell out within minutes of being released. What you should be able to find in stock are the Blackfoot 2.0, Speedgoat, or a Stonewall Skinner. And if you use the code CHANGEAGENTS10, that's going to net you 10% off of your first order. Again, my personal favorite blade is the Speedgoat. If they have them in stock right now, don't mess around. Put it in your cart and complete the checkout. Montana Knife Company, they build working knives for working people. And like I said at the beginning, I could not be more proud to collaborate with them on Change Agents Season 2. There's a lot of things I like about the Mountain Tough program, but I think primarily what I enjoy is they focus on mental toughness in addition to just the physical toughness. Everything they do is grounded in one purpose, life transformations and being strong between the years in the mind. And there's also a community of 15,000 plus Mountain Tough athletes. So the community is strong, they're supportive, and they're gonna help keep you accountable. So you can train anywhere, You can stream anywhere. You can access guided training and on-demand workouts right from your phone, your tablet, or TV or computer, whatever you're into. And everything you need is in one spot. The Mountain Tough subscription gets you access to all the Mountain Tough programs, new programs, and bonus content. And they have programs for everyone. Those who hit the gym and heavy weights, those who like to work out at home with no gear or minimal gear, and everything in between. Mountain Tough has been the trusted training by the dedicated for years now including U.S. military special forces and dedicated backcountry hunters. There is no excuse for you to not start the day. With Mountain Tough, you can conquer your goals with the ideal program for your lifestyle and schedule. Train with equipment or just your body weight on your phone, tablet, TV, or web browser. Most importantly, they will help you train your mindset so you are always ready for anything that life throws away. Mountain Tough subscribers get full access to world-class home and gym programs, groundbreaking mental toughness training, self-improvement, prehab and rehab, biomechanical form coaching, stretching and mobility flows, nutrition guidance, challenge workouts, and the global Mountain Tough community. Mountain Tough is offering Change Agents listeners an incredible offer. You're going to get 40% off on the all-new Mountain Tough Plus annual subscription with the code CHANGEAGENTS. Go to mtntough.com and enter the code CHANGEAGENTS to receive 40% off, a savings of about $100 on your Mountain Tough Plus annual subscription. 
That is MTN, Mike Tango November, tough.com, and enter the code change agents to save 40%. That is less than 50 cents per day for the best in class physical and mental training. Do you have any sense of, and specifically narrowing it down to either uh, violence, sexual assault, or missing indigenous women, do you have any sense of where the, I don't even necessarily know how to describe it because I've never really had a deep conversation about this, where the origin of the event generally occurs? Does it more often occur when the women leave the tribal land or is it a 50-50 of it, you know, maybe an event originates on tribal land, but then it seems like the bodies are oftentimes not found on the tribal land, especially if the obviously the act of violence occurs somewhere else. Do you have any sense of uh, of kind of the, I guess it would be the the framework for how that is occurring? Yeah. So it is very unique. I think the way that Indigenous women are victimized is very systemic. So on the one hand, you have women who are on the reservation. Um, that was me at one point. And traffickers will come to these communities and find vulnerable people and traffic them, um, often with the use of um, substance, like substance abuse as well. Um, a, a person who is struggling with substance use disorder is more likely to be targeted for human trafficking um, because they are um, controlled by got, the substance. You got leverage, yeah. So that's one case that's happening both in on the reservation and in the cities. Mm -hmm. 70% of indigenous people do live in urban settings. Mm -hmm. So while the majority of the crimes are happening in the cities um, or in rural areas outside of the reservation, the reason why I do talk about the reservation so much is because they are in such a unique context because there are traffickers coming from outside into the reservation because they know that's where the people are. And then here in the city, um, I would say indigenous women are not quite targeted in the same way. However, there are still people with awareness of that, that loophole. And that's kind of where we get cases like, um, like the Yakima social worker here who was murdered, but they are both very unique contexts and are similar to finding like the vulnerabilities. Mm -hmm. In for Native women and um, men and boys as well in each unique context. Yeah, the pe people often, I think, dismiss the intelligence of those that are either criminals or have nefarious desires or just are broken. There are some mm -hmm. really accomplished predators out there and people who are very smart about the systems, who understand this potential it's not, I don't think it's supposed to be a gray area. I'm sure on paper, the tribal versus state versus federal, like I'm sure it looks great on paper. If this happens, then this person will help. If this happens, then this organization will help. You know, when the rubber meets the road, I can see how the reality of that probably doesn't mesh up as well. But there are some really smart people out there. And unfortunately, not everybody who is really smart wants to make a, a rocket that goes to Mars. Some people want to go and try to traffic human beings or ruin other people's lives for whatever reason it may be, and that's incredibly unfortunate. Um, tell me about how you're using your running to kind of drive awareness of what's going on and using it as a platform for your advocacy. Thank you. And actually, while we were talking, there was one thing I wanted to add before I move on to running for missing and murdered indigenous Please, people. we can go wherever you want to go. This is your time. <laughs> <laughs> um, is at least here in, in King County in the Seattle area, um, indigenous people would make about one and a half percent of the population, the general population, but we make up 6% of the houseless. Hmm. So during the relocation era, indigenous peoples were told that you can move to the big city and we'll help you find a job and you'll create like a better life for your family. Unfortunately, what happened during the relocation era was indigenous peoples got to the city and there was no work. There was no way to find a home. There was no way to provide for your family. And it led to um, mass homelessness. And when someone is houseless or they're struggling or they're vulnerable with mental health, they're also targeted for as victims of violence. 
So there's multiple layers mm-hmm. of, of social net failures that but, indigenous peoples are falling through and that's making them targets. That makes total sense. I mean, you know, talking about your connection to community and the education that the tribe is doing on the Sundays, when you know who you are and what you stand for, it's so much harder to be pushed around or manipulated. And then if you have a stable environment or you have a, you know, a stable living condition, I mean, it, it, those things, they, they move you away from victimization generally. Of course, there's edge cases for everything, but it doesn't surprise me that those things compounded are creating, um, you know, an, an even larger issue along this topic. Yeah. Thanks for letting me jump in there. It's no, of like, course. Um, but back to running for missing and murdered indigenous people. So I started running track and field um, in about middle school. I really enjoyed the way it made me feel. And then when I transferred to the Muckleshoot Tribal School, I started running for my community. You know, I found it very empowering to wear like the word Muckleshoot or the tribe Muckleshoot on my uniform and to defy expectations of what was expected at of a quote unquote, like tribal school athlete. Um, and it was through this like empowerment through running, I was able to find strength, not only in myself, but in my community. I think experiencing violence myself growing up as well as witnessing it around me uh, to the full ex- fullest extent, to the point where um, women and role models were being missing and murdered. It was very hard for me to find confidence, similarly to what you were saying, like the, when you're you're confident in your identity, it's it's almost a protective measure in itself. And that was something that I was just lacking growing up. Um, hopelessness is a really big um, epidemic, not only in Native communities, but in um, low social economic communities in general, like the sense of powerlessness in the face of social problems. And running gave me that, that sense of accomplishment, of um, empowerment. And then once I became a senior in high school and I was competing at the state championships, I saw a Lakota runner whose name is Jordan Marie Whetstone. And she ran in the 2019 Boston Marathon with a red handprint painted over her mouth, along with the letters MMIW down her arm and her leg. And she was running for missing and murdered indigenous women. And this was all around the same time that the Urban Indian Health Institute had come out with that report, um, exposing that it wasn't just our local areas, but it was nationwide that this was a problem. And it was these two events combined where I felt empowered to use my platform. And I reached out to Jordan and I asked her permission to follow in her footsteps. And a few weeks later, I was racing in the Washington State Championships with a red handprint over my mouth and the letters MMIW down my leg. What was the response to that when you did that the first time? It was very strong in positive ways and not as positive ways. On one hand, um, my community was very proud of me. I was getting messages from not only young runners in the Washington area, but runners from New Mexico and runners from Arizona and across the state and nation telling me that they felt inspired by what I did. I dedicated my races to specific indigenous women in my community. And the families also um, expressed gratitude and appreciation for bringing their stories to light. However, at the meet itself, it was not as, was not received as well. I had actually had people come up to me and say like, oh, nice war paint. Hmm. Um, or people trying to get me disqualified. Luckily, hmm. I had a coach who had um, line by line went through the rule book to make sure that nothing you know, could happen to me before I did that. But there were not super positive um, reactions sure i forgot to ask you this but what event do you run um so now now that i'm older (laughs) (laughs) um the 3k and the 5k in cross country um but at the back in my youth um at that meet i ran the 400 the 800 
1600 and the 3200. So I raced uh, four events. I love how you are describing uh, high school and below as in your youth and you're in your senior year of college. Um, as somebody who's likely twice your age, you are still in your youth. <laughs> Enjoy it and abuse it to the best of your ability while you can, because man, the sand and the hourglass is coming for you at some point. <laughs> yeah, definitely. At least when I see my 18 year old, 19 year old teammates, just stretching a little bit and going on their run. And I'm there with my, with my activation bands oh, and my yes. rollers. Yes. I'm starting, starting to feel it a little bit. Yeah. You got to do the workout before the workout. Otherwise you're just going to hear. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, as you continue, I'm assuming after that first race, that obviously has not been the first time that you have done that. And, and I would uh, assume, please correct me if I'm wrong, that you continued to do so in subsequent races. I'm wondering if the reaction kind of stayed the same or did it change to be uh, more positive once people knew that you were going to do that so they could probably stop looking for, uh, you know, very uh, antiquated rules in the rule book to try to get you disqualified? Yeah, you're absolutely right. The more that I began to uh, to make a name for myself as running for Indigenous people and I set a pretty, pretty, um, let's say strict boundary with everybody that I met or anybody who asked me that this was something that I would never back down from. Um, it's not something that like I would ever separate from myself and that running and my indigenous identity uh, will never, will never be separated, that they will always be um, attached and even dependent on each other. So the first time that I did it was probably where I got the most resistance um, when I went into the junior college level, I asked the um, a member on the NJC, the National Junior College um, Athletic Association board, if I would be able to run at the national championships with the paint, and I was actually told no, hmm. um, and that would be too political and divisive. Interesting. I was 18 back then, so I had a lot of fight. I still do, but there's something about that, like teenage angst. Uh, oh, it's real. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is very real. I have an 18 year old right now and a 20 year old. Oh. And my daughter is 15 <laughs> and working her way right into that angst. So I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which in this point of time was a strength um, because I basically just refused to take that answer. So I continued asking other board, other people on the board and they actually overruled that original um, decision. So on the junior college level, I was then allowed to run with paint. So I did that both at the national championships for cross country, um, my freshman year in college, which we actually won, which was pretty special. And then again, at a, um, a half marathon in my sophomore year. And then a third time in um, my junior year, like mix of junior, closer to senior, um, senior year, where I ran another half marathon uh, with the red handprint in Yakima, actually. I'm really glad that you didn't back down on your convictions. It's uh, there are a lot of young men and women who are very convicted on certain issues until they get pressed on back or told no, and they're like, "Oh, okay." And uh, I think if you do that you're not as convicted as you might want people to believe. <laughs> so I'm, a sure. yeah, I'm very appreciative that, uh, that you actually held your ground on that. Has historically over, uh, I mean, for as long as you've been able to look at this or looking at the data, are the rates of these incidents or violence, is it stable? Is it decreasing? Is it increasing? Are there any trends pointing towards the direction that it's going? Unfortunately, the dat like the numbers aren't just aren't really quite there. Um, what I can say, at least on a community level, is that in Washington we've enacted some legislation that I think is putting us on the right path. So we have the missing Indigenous persons alert. We are the first state to have an alert system for missing Native people. So similar to a silver alert or an amber alert. Mm -hmm. Um, except for missing Native people. 
as well as um, Washington is creating a missing Indigenous persons cold case unit. And while I am all about prevention, um, like things with the the um, the alert, as well as creating like having a list, a constant running list of missing Indigenous peoples and having a task force, I think the cold case unit is something that needs to be invested in as well. Because unfortunately, a lot of these cases were neglected and have turned to cold cases and having a unit to come back to these cases is the closest thing that these families are going to get to justice. So I think both of these things need to be invested in. I do see a really big social and legislative shift happening where there's more awareness, where people are investing into prevention more and people are learning about the, the signs and the, the symptoms that lead to these situations. And so I think there are a lot of ways to prevent violence against Indigenous people that um, the broader general um, population is beginning to invest in. Yeah, it's, so yeah, it's interesting to bring up the cold case and advocating for more resources in that area. One of the billboards that I drove by, the woman has the young woman has been missing for, and I, I might be slightly off on this, but it was somewhere between four to six years, which mm-hmm. I, I think the you know don't want to make any uh, hypothesis as to the likely outcome, but the data is kind of out there whether native people missing that long or just people missing that long in general, the statistics are not, they're not great when it comes to finding that person alive at the very least. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the hardest things too is a lot of cultural um, traditions and native communities require or have very specific um, resting place traditions or practices. Mm-hmm. And not being able to have that that practice or that tradition to lay that relative to rest is also doing um, some like spiritual damage as well. Like I know at least in my community uh, or in my personal traditions, when somebody passes away, we try to get them buried in the ground within the next three days. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are just very, there's uh, a very like sacred practices around someone like moving on um, to the next life or however that you would put it, that um, a lot of these families are being stripped from the right to do so. Given your time operating in this arena and the knowledge that you have, if I could wave a wand, probably a Harry Potter wand, it's not a big deal, and make you queen for a day, are there some things that you would immediately change that you think would have a, a drastic impact? Absolutely. I would love to see a missing and murdered Indigenous women and peoples task force across all of the states. I think the missing Indigenous persons alert system is something that should be implemented also throughout the entire nation, as well as a cold case unit. And while we are seeing some funding come through Deb Holland's missing and murdered unit um, on the federal level, there needs to be more statewide statewide initiatives being made because while like nation the nationwide initiatives are are helpful and they're providing funding each tribe and each like local area has their own like unique context to how indigenous people are being victimized Mm -hmm. and that needs to be prioritized on a state level Um, another thing if i could Wave my Harry Potter wand. I am a Hufflepuff. Um, Hufflepuff? Come yeah. on. Well, as long as you're not Slytherin, I guess it's going to be okay. Yeah. <laughs> 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 uh, but if I could wave a wand, I would also create some kind of um, legislation. I actually wrote a um, a policy proposal on it. Is a um, an initiative that requires tribal and state law enforcement to partner together when there is a missing indigenous person in a border town. I worry about that looking good on paper. And Mm -hmm. again, the, when the rubber meets the road, it not being as, not that I would advocate against that by any stretch. I just worry about 
there's such a gap between, you know, bills that can be written and the real life execution of those things. It's that's where mm-hmm. those seams in oversight and seams in leadership can be found. And that's where people exploit them, unfortunately. No, you're absolutely correct. And the only safeguard I get to see to something like that is hiring indigenous people in these state, um, these state institutions and businesses, I guess you could say. Uh, for example, the um, in the Spokane area of Washington, closer to Montana, actually, um, on the east side of Washington, there is a um, tribal liaison in the um, deputy departments. And so having someone on the other side of that partnership who is Indigenous and who is, uh, like, has that view and that goal and that understanding of what it would look like to work together is, um, I think, doing a benefit to everybody. And while it, you're totally correct, like, it's policy versus implementation is something that like, it's the worst. All... It's just the worst. Even at like an organizational level, it's just where it always falls apart. Absolutely. But I do think tribal liaisons can assist some of that implementation um, using that knowledge of, of both sides, you know, and what that could look like. Yeah. And, you know, I actually need to, uh, I need to make sure that I add this to what I said, you know, when policy and procedure where that falls apart what needs to be remembered in that is that you still have to have the policy to lean back on. So just because it's can be complicated at a time, I am, I don't want anybody to think that I'm advocating for not doing that policy work, because if you don't have the policy, you probably are going to have no authorities or responsibilities to, to lean back upon. So although it is the point of friction and struggle, maybe, yes. maybe people just can do a better job, you know, that's, but we should, we should still have policy. Good morning, everybody. As you know, Change Agents is an Ironclad original, but what you may not know is that for over a decade, Ironclad has worked with brands and individuals to create world-class films, series, podcasts, and ad campaigns. In fact, I've been working with Ironclad for the past few years. I was introduced to them on a project through the Navy SEAL Foundation. I've worked with them uh, on a variety of projects, even up here in Montana, long before they proposed the idea of Change Agents to me. They're the best in their field. And I say that because there are plenty of people out there looking for the best, looking for the cream of the crop, looking for the top of the triangle. And if you're looking for that, you need to look no further than Ironclad. If you ever need media by way of film, a series, podcasts, or ad campaigns, they have you covered. You can reach out today and follow them anywhere at This Is Ironclad, the ampersand and then this is Ironclad, or visit them online, thisisironclad.com. Again, www.thisisironclad.com. Are you are you hopeful about the work that you are doing? Are most of your day, do you feel frustrated at the end of most of your days? Are you seeing things trending in the right direction? I do believe that I'm seeing things trending in the right direction. I think a few years ago, I would have had a lot more frustration, but there is something very empowering about being able to work directly with families um, and being, you know, at these policy hearings and going to the missing and murdered Indigenous women and peoples, um, Washington Task Force, and even like now giving uh, presentations to schools. I go and visit schools, um, both in Washington state and sometimes out of state, where I present on missing and murdered indigenous people in a um a, in a pg way or pg-13 way and i'm getting questions from students asking things like what can i as middle schooler do to prevent violence for native women or things like you know thank you for educating me i had no idea um, and to see like this younger generation stepping up and wanting to be not only like better people for their for their uh, local community but to be better allies for all people who are experiencing um, social discrimination or social injustice gives me a ton of hope. You know, I think being uh, being around these like middle school and high school students who are really stepping up to that role, it makes me feel pretty optimistic. And I've seen what kind of legislation can come from the um, 
The activism and the awareness and raising the voices of the people who have survived or the family members, you know, there's le there's real legislation and policy that's coming from that. So it's taken some time, about four years, actually, yeah. four or five years, but I'm finally feeling pretty, pretty optimistic. I know you've mentioned um, kind of more at the beginning when we were talking, you had some some pretty concrete examples and s some specific names of instances that have left a mark with you. Do you have any other ones that rise to the top of your memory? Uh, and I ask because I think it's important that people confront the things that they don't want to hear. I think it's important that people understand the breadth and depth and scope of what could be happening sometimes, probably not right in front of their eyes, obviously. I don't really, I don't think most people would allow somebody else to be victimized in that manner, but maybe in their community or in their state that they're not aware of. I'm just trying to, uh, hopefully you have not, they're not good examples either for clarity for people. And that's exactly why I would want you to share them so people can have mm -hmm. their hair blown back a little bit, or their eyebrows raised or whatever it may be that could shift their focus one degree. Yeah. And I do want to provide a little bit of a confident warning. You basically just did, but, yeah. um, you know, people know what they're getting into with me. Don't worry. You're totally good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Um, so the one of two people come to mind right away. Um, the first one is my aunt, Alice Looney, who went missing in 2004 um, and was found 15 months later. Um, her case was never really taken seriously. And she was found um, forcibly like wedged under a tree. And the, um, unfortunately, the local police at that time had basically labeled her death as a, um, as a, as a natural death. Hmm. Um, and closed the case. Um, it went, even though it wasn't necessarily closed, like solved, it went cold. Um, and to this day, you know, my family has no idea what happened to my aunt, Alice Lee. And in, an even more tragic case, there's Rosenda Strong from the Yakima Reservation. Um, Rosenda Strong went missing and was found in a freezer uh, that was thrown off of the highway. Um, and unfortunately, she was dismembered into trash bags. And again, it was years until finally her sister showed up at every single possible meeting. Uh, Rosenda's sister was at... Um, like legislation hearings and family testimonies for missing and murdered indigenous people. And her sister was, um, was missing in 2019. And it was only in 2023 that they started the, they named the suspects. And these, the, for the whole four years, her sister was doing it all on her own. And I went to the court, the court cases with her sister. Um, her name is Sissy Strong. And the way that she has to look all of these subjects uh, or all of the suspects in the eyes, like people who, who murdered, who dismembered and threw away you know, her sister. And it was just let with complete lack of urgency from the local police. And it was, she was just relentlessly and tirelessly showing up, um, doing her own investigating. And I think about how heartbreaking it would be if my sister had to do something like that or had to do that for me because this whole time she wasn't even allowed to grieve she wasn't able to do her her traditional resting ceremonies for her sister and when her sister was found she was dismembered yeah. and it was just this complete lack of urgency and i i my heart really breaks not only for women like rosenda but women like like sissy her sister who aren't even given the opportunity to grieve because they're just constantly pushing for justice that the system is failing to do on her behalf. It's a burden on a family and individuals that nobody should have to bear. That is, uh, Absolutely. I, yeah, I don't have the words to describe how hard that must have been uh, for her and her family. And I'm sorry you had to experience that with your own aunt, uh, by the way. Um, two, two questions for you. How can people get more involved in raising awareness about this issue? Mm -hmm. I would first recommend in educating yourself. The Urban Indian Health Institute creates these studies 
that are not only um, native, run, and led, and gathered, but they also make them that they're very accessible and easy to read. You know, I was 18 years old and I was able to read and understand these studies and get a really good grasp of how big the issue is, as well as what's um, concerning it. And there's also a lot of content out there, like um, like TED Talks on missing and murdered Indigenous people. Your TED and Talk is very good, by the way. I watched it. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Mine isn't the only one, but there's more out there, too. <laughs> um that just dive a little bit deeper into the legislative issues um, about missing and murdered Indigenous people. And uh, finally, I would say by bringing it to um, your realms of influence. So whether it be um, sharing the missing Indigenous persons posters, you know, um, at your workplace, or even if you have any like community groups, like sharing it to the groups, there are, um, there are social media pages that have missing and murdered um, indigenous peoples, like uh, the missing posters part of it. Um, that should be pretty easy to find on social media if you just look look up missing native people and then state, your state. Um, there are usually some lists that have um, active missing and by subscribing to those lists and then posting them in on your social media or wherever you have the most influence is not only raising awareness, but actually providing an opportunity to gather some information about a missing um, missing native person. Um, so between self-educating and um, sharing news and media, those are really great places to start. Do you have any, and I'm sure there are many organizations that maybe you've had touch points with, but do you, so those are some great resources for people. Do you have any organizations that you may point people towards that they could support? And again, it doesn't have to yeah. be like a complete list, but maybe just in your own experience, some organizations that are doing what you consider to be positive or having a positive impact. Yeah, I would definitely say they're a local organization. Um, they're called Mother Nation. And the place that I work at or plan to work at, the reason why I picked this place is because they provide holistic care and they are able to do that through donations. There's not a lot of grants out there right now that promote um, missing and murdered indigenous advocacy. And so they strategically use donations and then put that as like their own little funding for missing indigenous peoples. And Mother Nation is one of the only places that I know that will do things like covering um, funeral costs, or covering hotel and gas cards for families who are searching in different states. Um, and even sometimes like paying their rent, like the family member, for example, in this case, like Sissy, if she's attending court hearings and doing um, and searching herself, she doesn't always have the time to go to work and pay rent. Yeah. So paying her rent so that she's able to do that. Um, and me personally, like volunteering on searches, uh, we have, at Mother Nation, when I was interning there, like we have found somebody. Like we found him in the streets of Seattle. And that wouldn't have been possible without the support of Mother Nation. So I am just in huge admiration of their work. Any final thoughts that you'd like to leave people with? Um yeah, sure. I would say education is the first step. It's also one of the most empowering steps. And there are so many different ways to educate yourself, whether it be through videos, whether it be through studies. Um, there's also um, like movies coming out as well. So if you connect better to like a story, mm -hmm. um, there is quite a few films coming out that cover missing and murdered indigenous people. Um, and you know, we all start somewhere. Yeah, it's a, uh, you know, from the outside, it could seem almost like an unsolvable problem, uh, an issue that has a magnitude that, I don't know, you're out there screaming at the ocean trying to change the tide. Um, but I like your approach, and I'm, uh, it's awesome to see somebody so committed to something that they believe in. I wish that many, many other young men and women could find something, not to, not to tell them what that thing should be, uh, but it's awesome to see how committed you are um, and how willing you are to stand for what you believe in. And 
maybe I'll just close it with that. Thank you for being you. And thank you for taking the time to talk about this issue and uh, sharing your message. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Of this is, um, I really appreciate the opportunity to share. I hope everybody enjoyed today's episode and it got you thinking about the things that may be going on right around you that you have never paid attention to. If you want to learn more about this issue and how you can help, please visit nativehope.org. That is nativehope.org. Thank you again for tuning in to Change Agents in Ironclad Original, presented by Montana Knife Company. I'll see you guys again next week.